Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. The province and the country lost a political legend last Friday, William Grenville Davis. The 18th Premier of Ontario died in his hometown of Brampton, surrounded by family at age 92. We'll look back at the Davis years on this Tuesday, August 10th, 2021. So let's get to it. One of the giants of Ontario politics has passed away, and we at TVO are fortunate that one of the real authorities on Bill Davis happens to work in the building, uh, none other than my co-host here, Steve Pakin. Uh, So we are breaking our summer podcast hiatus to pay our respects to Premier Bill Davis and discuss his life and legacy. The guy sitting opposite me, still virtually for now, wrote a nearly 600-page book on Bill Davis. So who better to talk to about this than my co-host, Steve? Steve, uh, where to start? I mean, what do you want to say first about the man? Well, I guess the first thing I should say is he's he, he still never read my book. <laughs> this is the funny thing, you know. Um, I spent almost 30 years, not every minute of 30 years, but on and off for 30 years trying to convince him that he had a life of consequence and that he needed to talk to somebody, could be me, but it didn't have to be me, that he ought to talk to somebody about his life, his 25 years in public life. And um, and finally, when he was about 85 years old, he agreed to do that. And I don't mind telling you that when somebody agrees at age 85 to do something like that, John Michael, uh, you you work fast because you just never know. Right. Uh, So we did work fast. Uh, We did a lot of interviews over the course of a year. I remember writing the book, getting it done, getting the first copies off the presses, driving up to Brampton, going into his den presenting him and his wife Kathleen with the first two copies and and I thought to myself surely he can't wait to rip the cover off this thing and see what I've written about him and his kids just constantly joked with me about how well you know dad's not really a reader (laughs) so uh, he never did read the book but they assured me that uh, in in the waning months of his life uh, they read it to him and uh, I know they started from the beginning, and I don't know if they got all the way through it, because as you point out, it's a long book. Uh, <laughs> but I just thought, that's a funny anecdote to start with, so let's start there. Bill Davis never read my biography on him, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, I think we can mention here that uh, there was a, a previous uh, biography uh, written by the uh, journalist Claire Hoy uh, that my understanding is that uh, Premier Davis uh, was not fond of that volume. Um, and your uh, your biography of him, uh, I think, you know, really puts him in uh, the, the, the proper historical context, right? This was, uh, uh, he was Premier of, I think, at least at the beginning, he was the premier of a very different Ontario than uh, the one that he left. Uh, he changed uh, really uh, <laughs> almost everything about the province. I mean, we could go down the list, but by the time people listen to this podcast, I'm sure uh, most of this will be familiar. But, you know, schools, hospitals, uh, public transit, highways, uh, you know, fundamental uh, political and economic shifts in this province that happened uh, under Bill Davis's tenure, uh, both as education minister and premier. And um, you wrote in our newsletter that, you know, it's it's difficult to imagine 
as much as you know, it sounds like a strange thing to say about a man who was 92, uh, it's difficult to imagine a province without him now. Well, you started that question with Claire Hoy, and let me pick up on that, because, yes, Claire Hoy was a, a very small-c conservative right-wing columnist for, I think, the Toronto Sun, finally, but he worked at a number of different uh, newspapers. And, you know, all the things I like about Bill Davis, he didn't like about Bill Davis. He didn't think Davis was nearly conservative enough. He thought Bill Davis was too timid. He wanted Bill Davis to be a much more fire-breathing, common-sense, revolutionary conservative. And that's why the book that he wrote about Bill Davis in the, I think, late 1980s was a very critical, you might even say caustic, recitation of the Davis years. And Mr. Davis did not cooperate with him on that book. And again, getting back to the first thing I said, one of the arrows I took out of my quiver, in fact, the last arrow I took out of my quiver in order to try to get Mr. Davis to cooperate with anybody, but I hoped me, on writing his biography, was, you know, I started with gentle persuasion. Mr. Davis, I just read a book about Leslie Frost. He was a premier of Ontario like you. Uh, you are mentioned in his book, actually, here and here and here. Um, does it give you any ideas? And he had his assistant email me back and say, yes, Mr. Davis wanted me to tell you that this book does give him ideas. His idea is that if you two ever do a book together, his book will have to be longer than the Leslie Frost book because his premiership was longer than Leslie Frost's. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff, John Michael, I dealt with for 25 years, these kinds of things. I finally got to a point where I said to him, Mr. Davis, do you really want to give Claire Hoy the last word on your life? And the next day, I got a call from his assistant saying, Mr. Davis would like to see you in his den in Brampton at home tomorrow night. Could you please come up? And I think that finally aced it for me. I think the notion that Claire Hoy's book would be the last word on his historical accomplishments, which Hoy did not think much of, um, was just you know, didn't sit well with him. And that's when he invited me into his den and said, okay, what have you got in mind? And I told him, I said, I said, look, we can do one of three things here. Uh, my life by Bill Davis, and I'll ghostwrite it for you. Or uh, my life by Bill Davis as told to Steve Pakin. And it would still very much be his story told the way he wanted it told. And I said, and the third option is uh, the Bill Davis story by Steve Pakin. I said, in which case, I'll have editorial oversight, and it'll be, you know, the way I want to write it. And he sat there uh, pondering for about 30 or 40 seconds, and then he said, let's do number three. It's your book. You write it the way you want. And I think he ultimately agreed to that because he was very comfortable, first of all, if I may say in all immodesty, with my fundamental fairness. I think he knew that I would, I would look back at his years and analyze his years fairly, because I think he didn't think Claire Hoy did. And the second thing was, I think he was very comfortable with his own record, and that a fair analysis of his record would result in a book that he could live with. And so that's how we got to the finish line. And we spent a year together. Oh my gosh, what a wonderful year. I mean, visits to his condo in Florida and to his cottage on Georgian Bay and to his home in Brampton and uh, at the Albany Club, you know, which was the Tory hangout in downtown Toronto. And we just talked about a lot of great stuff and uh, things that he'd never talked before about. So that was really a, um, that was a real privilege to spend that much time with a man who was that influential on the course of Ontario and Canadian history. 
there is a kind of a generational divide here between uh, you and I. And, and I, I know we joke about our different ages, but, you know, for me, uh, Bill Davis is almost entirely, uh, with one exception, Bill Davis is almost entirely somebody uh, who is uh, a historical fact for me. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I was still quite young when he left politics. And uh, when people talk to me about Bill Davis, they are largely speaking about uh, somebody who was in- incredibly consequential and important, uh, but who left politics before I was in grade school. And you not only covered him uh, when he was premier and, and then built this uh, relationship with him uh, over several decades and really culminating in the book uh, i'm wondering uh, for lack of a, a, a more elegant way of asking this i mean just how, how are you feeling oh isn't that an interesting question uh well l- let me talk about your setup you're quite right he's 30 years older than me and i'm 20 years older than you so we've really got kind of three generations represented there and therefore uh you know very different ways of sort of looking at the province and the world um, I had a very sort of business-like professional relationship with him in the early 1980s when I covered his government, when uh, I can recall another reporter by the name of John McGrath stuck <laughs> microphones in his face as well. Your dad and I were both there at Queen's Park uh, covering the Bill Davis ship of state. Um, but then after he left public life, we would get together and we would see each other at things. And, and of course, my, my uh, more than occasional attempts to get him to... Um, to play along and give me interviews for a potential book. And the more time we spent together, I think the more we just really liked each other. And um, by the time we got that, I guess, year where we spent a lot of time together uh, in the service of writing the book, you know, I don't mind saying it. I think we became great friends. Um, I just loved spending time with him, John Michael. He was he was funny. He was touching. He told me things, for example, about um, about his first wife who died at the age of 31, leaving him widowed with four children under the age of seven. I mean, he never talked to he just didn't talk to other people about that. He was a very private guy. So some of the things that we talked about, he was talking about for the first time in his life uh, to people, presumably outside his immediate family. And and even then, I remember talking to his wife, Kathleen, his second wife whom he was married to for, gosh, almost 60 years, and with whom he had a fifth child. Uh, and, and even some of the things that he and I talked about, he had not talked with her because I, I think he just was, you know, bringing up that chapter of his life was extremely painful uh, to talk about his first wife. I mean, he met her in university. They were, you know, desperately in love, and they were really quite a fabulous couple. And then she got sick and died at 31 of cancer. And it just, I mean, he'd, he'd only just been elected an MPP. I mean, he went to John Robarts, who was the premier of, that, of, of the day, and said, you know, I know you've got plans for me, but I have to quit politics. I've got these four kids, and they don't have a mother, and I can't be in politics and, and be the politician that I want to be. Um, so I'm sorry, I'm going to have to quit. And Mr. Robarts, to his great credit, was a man of great judgment, just said, and one of the few people in the world who could call him Billy, he said, no, just hang on, Billy, just hang on. Let's see if we can get your life organized. And and sure enough, uh, they did. And uh, actually, I think Mr. Robarts uh, helped organize to get a governess to come over from the United Kingdom uh, to take care of the children. Uh, and he could stay in public life uh, long enough 
to get his affairs in order. Uh, and then he ultimately married Kathleen and they reconstituted their family. And um, that was a wonderful thing. So in a long circuitous way, like Bill Davis would, I guess, I'm going to get around to answering your question, which is to say, I don't mind telling you that on the day when his son Neil called me to tell me that his father died, that was a tough day. Um, yeah, I felt very, very lucky to have known him and, you know, very fortunate to have been in his universe, uh, but very sad uh, that he's gone. And I'll tell you another thing. I haven't told anybody this, and I, uh, I guess this is as good a spot to say it as any. Uh, I called him on his birthday, as I did every year, July 30th, and I could tell from our last conversation that this was going to be the last birthday we were going to get to speak on. You could just tell. And I said to him, uh, it's been one of the great honors of my life to get to know you and spend time with you. And I love you. I said that to him. And uh, I'm glad I did, because as I knew, that would be the last chance I'd ever have to talk to him. Feel free to pass the buck on this one, but uh, I have to ask, what did he say? You know, um, Mr. Davis, consistent with his being a very, very modest guy, just took it in. He just took it in. And I remember when I went up to his cottage on Georgian Bay, and we spent the whole day together, and he said, if you're going to do a chapter in the book, you're, you need to know the significance of my cottage on Georgian Bay to me and my family. So I spent the day with him up there. And I mean, it was great. I mean, he's got a great family. Um, they just had a, you can see, I mean, you could just, as a guy just sort of eavesdropping and watching how it all unfolded, you can just see that this was, you know, one of the places in, maybe the only place in this world where he could really be himself with his family and just let his hair down a little bit, you know? And, and when we got to the end of the day and it was time for me to take, uh, it's on an island, so I had to take a boat back to the mainland. I just, I, I just walked over to him and I leaned over and I, and I whispered in his ear, you are really blessed. And he just looked at me. You know, it was the same kind of reaction. He just looked at me, smiled, nodded his head, didn't say anything. And, and that's it. You know, he's, he's still a very, uh, you know, he, he's, he's from a generation that doesn't outwardly show a lot of emotion. And that was what I got on that day in Georgian Bay. And that was what I got after my final conversation with him. Uh, you mentioned my father. Can I tell you my, my really, my one and only Bill Davis story? <laughs> Please, yes. Um, so uh, when I was just starting out, this is now more than a decade ago, uh, the Globe and Mail asked me to write something about, um, this was just as Rob Ford was poised to win the Toronto's mayoral election in 2010, and the Globe and Mail asked me to write something about the sort of the, the changing nature of conservative politics in uh, Toronto, and I said to myself, "There's no way I can write this without at least trying to talk to Bill Davis," and so I, I called his office and I left a message. But I said, uh, "You know, Mr. Davis might also know uh, my my father, who is also named John McGrath," and I just want to be really clear i'm not trying to mislead him or, or trick him into returning my father's phone call this is you know somebody d different and uh, they said okay well we'll pass this on to mr davis and the next day my phone rings and 
it's uh, uh hello is this john mcgrath uh, this is bill davis uh, speaking and i says oh uh, premier davis thank you so much for calling me back i just have a few questions for you and it very rapidly became clear that he wasn't rude or unkind or anything like that but he was really returning the phone call as a courtesy to my father <laughs> and uh one of uh the things i think you know we could talk quite a bit about is you know uh mr davis legendarily did not answer questions he did not want to and he did not want to answer any of my questions <laughs> he was he was doing the polite thing and returning a a, a call from uh, uh the, the son of somebody who he knew and respected but after about I, I don't think i even tried for five minutes i think i spent maybe three minutes and it was uh in in stephen colbert's immortal phrase it was like boxing a glacier i just wasn't going to get anything out of it <laughs> so i said okay well uh mr davis thank you so much for uh, returning my call and have a great day and and that was about it <laughs> well you know you wouldn't be the first and you certainly weren't the last who tried to get you know very clear answers out of him at a time when he didn't want to be very clear. And I know that having done numerous scrums with him, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was it was always the same. We'd stick microphones in his face and we'd ask questions and he would, the circumlocution would just go on and on and on. And he would dance, you know, all around the, uh, all, all around the question. And, he, you know, he, he'd give you a lot of material, but then you'd go back to your office, you'd play your tape recorder back, you'd listen to what he actually said, and he didn't say a damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. He, he, it was it was clear as mud. Yeah, you walked all the way back to your office thinking, this is gold, I've got solid gold. And then you'd play the tape again, and you're like, oh, geez, there's nothing here. <laughs> and he took delight in that, and I'll tell you why. I mean, first of all, unlike a lot of politicians, he didn't hate the media, right? Like, no Trumpian enemy of the people, none of that BS. Uh, he really enjoyed the media. Uh, he enjoyed sparring with the media. He understood that the media had a job to do, and it wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, <laughs> to put a halo on him. They had a job to do, and, and he understood that. Uh, but he, he just had a very different approach. He, he almost took it as a challenge, you know, let's see, let's see if I can keep my name out of the newspapers today. <laughs> you know, where most politicians want to be on the front page in 60-point headline type, you know, with their big deals— uh, Mr. Davis's attitude was, it's okay if I'm not in the paper every day. And in fact, it's probably better if I'm not in the paper every day. Uh, you know, no harm. He always used to say, you don't get in trouble for the speeches you don't give. And, and you know, that's a very different approach to politics today. He, he wasn't uh, all about the ostentatiousness and trying to get the name in lights. Uh, he, he was more about just sort of good, decent, thorough, uh, effective government which for the most part he provided for the 14 years he was premier. It's something that I was trying to think about um, in the, you know, hours after we learned of his, his death, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's hard to imagine his type of politics working today. As much as everybody says that, you know, it's, I mean, it's practically a cliche in Ontario politics, you know, like, why can't we have leaders like Bill Davis again? Why can't we, uh, you know, go back to, to that? Um, but, and, and I'm, I'm not sure I could even, you know, explain why I think this, but it, it just, I, I really uh, don't uh, believe, and I'm not at all happy about it, but I just don't believe that his, um, his type of politics would work today. 
Well, I, I've thought a lot about that, as you can imagine, over the last few days, and I, I wonder about it myself. I mean, Mr. Davis was the Premier of Ontario before we had 24-7 all-news channels, before we had the toxicity of social media. And, you know, I, I wonder, you know, could he have been who he was today in that, in that kind of media environment? I'd like to think the answer was yes. I, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, regardless of what era he was born in, he was a thoroughly decent guy. And, and I say that not because he was so nice to me, but, you know, that's what his opponents said. His political opponents really admired him. They didn't hate him uh, because he didn't practice the politics of personal destruction. He understood that all back then 130 MPPs got elected by their constituents to come to Queen's Park to do the people's business. And they may all have different ideas about how to get to Jerusalem, but the fact of the matter is they were all there for the right reason. And he gave people the benefit of the doubt that way. And he got it that question period was a show and you're supposed to go in there and beat each other up. But then, of course, you could go out for dinner afterwards, which he did. Um, I think one of the most interesting aspects of his personality is the fact that if you look at who some of his best friends in politics are and were, they were from other parties. And in particular, leaders of the opposition, Bob Ray and Stephen Lewis, both NDP opposition leaders at various times in Ontario history, were great friends of Bill Davis's and both, I mean, they've both emailed me over the last few days just talking about how much they love the man. Uh, and they did love him. Like, love is not too strong a word. And I'm just wondering, what other New Democrat politician can you imagine saying that about a conservative politician today? Could Tom Mulcair have ever said that about Stephen Harper? I mean, can Andre Horvath say that about Doug Ford? Uh, I mean, keep going down the list. I just, I don't think it's possible. And that's because he was an inclusive guy. He was a moderate guy. He wasn't trying to destroy anybody. He, he, and particularly John Michael in those 1975 to 81 years when he was in a minority parliament and he needed the opposition if he wanted to get anything done. You know, it, it helped to have his kind of collaborative personality as opposed to it's going to be my way or the highway because that just wouldn't have worked. So, yeah, that 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 was his uh, what are they saying business? That was his unique selling proposition. Just a moderate, decent, collaborative, competitive. God, he liked to win. He yeah. never lost. Right. He never lost seven election wins in Brampton four as party leader, four straight election wins. And of course, his leadership convention in 71. He never lost. Um, so he was competitive, but he was decent, too. You know, we talk about the era, and uh, I think you and I have, have discussed this before, uh, though not on the podcast, about, you know, uh, the 1970s uh, really just being such a fundamentally different time economically that, uh, you know, future governments really wouldn't get the same kind of um, growth and uh, all of the, the economic benefits that Davis got to govern under. And, you know, it's just like, it's harder to govern if you are Bob Ray and you're faced with this like earth shattering recession or uh, for that matter, the, the global financial crisis that Dalton McGinty uh, had to govern under or <laughs> COVID-19 uh, that Doug Ford yeah, has to govern Yeah, but you know under. what? You, you know what? I, I, I don't, let, I'm not going to let you get away with that. <laughs> well, again, let me <laughs> finish my, my, my thought here though, because okay. the, all the, right. uh, as I was thinking about this, um, in, again, in the hours after his death or that we learned about his death, you know, there are so many cases in the history books of governments that are, you know, handed golden opportunities and squander them. And you can say that 
the Tories or uh, Bill Davis personally, uh, you know, were handed a, a golden opportunity of a, an economy that was still growing rapidly uh, and all of these things. But, you know, governments do squander opportunities. And I think it's certainly fair to say that whatever they, they inherited or whatever they that uh, Davis's predecessors left him, uh, he absolutely capitalized on it. And, and he uh, he continued to build on it in a way that it would have been easy to rest on your laurels at that point. I think that's absolutely fair to say, but I but I, I would want to go farther. And by that, I mean, when he was education minister in the 1960s, absolutely. Ontario was go, go, go. They never ran deficits. They had lots of tax revenue coming in. They built schools. They built TVO. They built the college system. They built OISE. They built five new universities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's no question at all. And they got a lot of help uh, from a, a federal cost sharing program as well to do all that. So, you know, is he the best education minister in Ontario history? Yeah, he sure is. And is it partly because he was lucky enough to be education minister in the 1960s? Yeah, it sure is. So I'm happy to put that on the record. But let's not forget, in the mid-1970s, there was an Arab oil boycott, and gas prices went through the roof, and inflation was running at 12%, and interest rates went plenty high too. And we had we had what was called stagflation, where despite whatever uh, attempts uh, ministers of finance, both federally and provincially, attempted. Um, there just didn't seem to be any any way uh, to to get the economy back in shape. And and you know, workers were insisting on contract settlements uh, that would be double digit because, of course, inflation was going to eat away at so much of what they made. And then we get to the early 1980s, and you know, uh, people may not remember this because uh, you know, people may remember the recession of 1990, the the, the one Bob Ray had to deal with. Uh, because it, it was absolutely a kick in the gut. But I think if you look at the numbers, I think the economic contraction of the Ontario economy in the recession of the early 1980s, when Mr. Davis had his last majority government, I think it was worse. And, and yet he emerged from that recession with unprecedented levels of popularity, because even though they were very difficult economic times, he, he handled it well and he gave people the sense that a safe, secure hand was on the tiller. So, yes, part of his political career, no question, he was the right guy at the right time, and he reaped the benefits thereof. But he had plenty of economic hardship that he had to deal with during his premiership, and yet he still won four straight elections, and I think had he not retired in 1985, he'd have won a fifth. If he'd wanted a fifth win, it was there for the taking. He chose to retire instead. Well, and uh, Bob Ray told you exactly that in, in a 1996 uh, documentary that you did about uh, Bill Davis. Uh, I, I believe the uh, phrase that uh, Mr. Ray used was that he, he massively understayed his welcome. And uh, he, I think he, he said uh, if he'd stuck around for another election, he would have absolutely wiped the floor with both Bob Ray and, and David Peterson. That was exactly the expression he said. He'd have wiped <laughs> the floor with Peterson and me. That's what he said. Um and it's you know it's one of those uh, fascinating sort of what ifs of uh, uh, Ontario political history. I mean, the the big question of Bill Davis's departure, of course, and I think we have to talk at least a little bit about this. Is you know if he had stuck around for another election, he would have been the guy um, implementing the full funding of Catholic schools, um, which he announced, and then you know I, I think it's fair to say he 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 let the election settle who was actually going to have to implement it um <laughs> and 
if he had stuck around for an election, like this is really, I think, one of the most controversial parts of, of Bill Davis's legacy is the full funding of, of Catholic schools. It was controversial then. It's, I think, controversial now in 2021 for very different reasons. Um, it's a bit of an unanswerable question. Well, I think you put your finger on what was the biggest controversy that he had to deal with during the course of his 14 years as premier. And I know he likes to tell the story of in 1971, after he won the leadership convention, on the fourth ballot, incidentally, by only 44 votes, if 23 people at that convention had changed their vote on that last ballot, we might not be talking about him today. It's quite interesting. But anyway, uh, he went in to see Premier John Robarts, and <laughs> Robarts said to him, Billy, uh, I've got everything under control here. I've only left you two little small problems, the Spadina Expressway and the Bishop's Brief is what he called it. <laughs> and by that he meant, you know, I'm going to stick you with the decision of whether or not to let Metro Toronto build the Spadina Expressway which he didn't, of course. Mr. Davis stopped it a few months after uh, taking over from Mr. Robarts, and it remains stopped today at Eglinton Avenue West. And the other thing, the bishop's brief was what to do about full funding for separate schools. Now, he would tell you his position evolved over the course of his time in public life. You've got to remember in the 1960s, when he was education minister, Catholic schools were funded as part of the Confederation Agreement to the end of grade eight. Mr. Davis, as education minister, added public funding for grades 9 and 10. And then the Catholic Church and the, the, the bishops of the day, Cardinal Carter in particular, G. Emmett Cardinal Carter, uh, lobbied and lobbied and lobbied and kept the channels of communication open because they wanted funding for grades 11, 12, and 13 as well. And in 1971, when he took over and called the election, he said, no, we're not going to do it. I know the Catholic community wants it, but we're not going to do it. It would increase sectarian divisions in our society. It would chip away at the funding we need for the public school system, so we're not going to do it. And in some respects, he won that 1971 election, a renewed majority government for the Tories, a bit on the backs of the separate school issue. And I think you got to remember, Ontario is a very different place then. It was much more, much higher percentage of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who would have been happy to see the premier of the day sort of sticking it to the Catholics and not giving them full funding for their school system. And, and, and I think part of him always felt a little bit guilty that he won that election in part on the separate schools question. But over the ensuing 13 years that he um, stayed in the premier's chair, he kept the lines of communications with the bishops open to the point where, if memory serves, on the 12th of June, 1984, he called Bob Ray and David Peterson before question period that day and said, I think you guys may want to be in the house today. Okay, <laughs> uh, they were. He got up there and he did a volt fast. And he just reversed himself from the 1971 election and he said, essentially, fairness and equity now dictate that we fully fund the Catholic school system right to the end of high school. And all of the arguments that he'd used 13 years earlier, he reversed himself on. And I think in part because the facts on the ground had changed. I mean, he noticed that in his hometown of Brampton, he was seeing a lot more Filipino kids and Italian kids and Portuguese kids, and they were all Catholics. And and he just felt that fairness dictated that that after grade 10, they not have to pay tuition to continue in their Catholic schools if they wanted to stay and go to high school in Catholic schools. So that's how that happened. And then you're quite right. Three months, no, four months later, he announced his retirement and um, left it to uh, his successor to implement. And David Peterson, in his minority government, uh, with the support of Bob Ray, who was the leader of the third-place NDP at the time, uh, brought it in. And we, to this day, have 
uh, the full extended funding of separate schools to the end of high school. Uh, and, um, and it's still controversial. A lot of people think we should be defunding the separate school system as opposed to increasing funding to it. But that was his view 36 years ago. And it remained his view, I should tell you, for his entire life. He did not regret the decision. Hmm. We're getting a bit long, but I, I have to ask one last question. Um, this is not Ontario's finest hour. I think it's you know, uh, a gentle way of putting it. You have this pandemic and still economic chaos. And um, Bill Davis obviously cared a great deal about this province and had devoted a, a, a really serious chunk of his life to, to governing it. And I'm just curious, did you and he talk about uh, what the pandemic was doing to the province? And did he, um, did he say anything to you about what was going on and, and not even necessarily as a political confidence, but just what, what were his thoughts about uh, how things are in Ontario today? Well, you have to remember that he, as much as he was a modest man and as much as he was a decent man, he was also a competitive man. <laughs> and, and, you know, there might have been a small part of him that, that didn't mind thinking, A, I wonder how I'd be doing if I were in the premier's chair to do and I had all of these challenges to deal with. And B, whoever is in the premier's chair, I'm sure couldn't be doing as good a job as I could be doing. Right. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that he had just like, come on, you don't get into politics if you have no ego at all. He had a little bit of an ego. And I think he allowed himself to go there from time to time. So while he was a, a generous guy when it came to not criticizing his successors, I remember he always used to say to me, you know, if I want to take public positions and come out and criticize uh, any of my successors, then I ought to stand for office. It's not fair. You know, um, you know, nobody did that to me and, and I'm not going to do it to anybody else. And it was on very, very rare occasions that he made public pronouncements on big issues of the day. I can remember when Doug Ford wanted to use the notwithstanding clause uh, of the Constitution uh, which Mr. Davis, of course, was a, was a father of Reconfederation Reconfedera and, um, and was part of the compromise that, that put that clause into our Constitution. And I remember him telling me, look, that was there for emergencies. That was there for crazy judges who made ridiculous decisions that needed to be overturned. It wasn't there to be used willy-nilly uh, on a whim. So that was, I think, one of the very few times he came out and publicly uh, was critical of uh, Premier Ford. Um, but you know, in the main, he he did not like to diss or badmouth his successors, and he stayed on pretty good terms with all of them. I know he was he was rather close to Kathleen Wynne, who named the uh, William G. Davis Trail down at Ontario Place after him, and the, rede the redesign of Ontario Place, I'm told, is going to keep that trail intact, and, and they said enhance it. Um, he got along quite well with Ernie Eves, no question about that. Uh, Dalton McGinty, when he had a minority parliament to deal with in his third term, sought a meeting with Bill Davis, had him come into his office at Queen's Park and say, look it, you're the master of making minority <laughs> parliament work. What do I do? Uh, I don't think it's any secret that uh, he didn't get along great with Mike Harris. And I don't believe he ever met Doug Ford. I don't believe they ever personally met. I'm also going to surprise you by telling you that his best friend of all his successors was Bob Ray. Um, the two of them just got on like a house on fire. They just really adored each other. They were very playful together. And despite the fact that they were not in the same political party, um, they had a lot of mutual respect and admiration for one another. Bob Ray was in the house from 1982 to 85. So part of Mr. Davis's last term. And, you know, the more time they spent together, the more they just really liked each other. So that's a long-winded way of saying, um, I don't think he ever... 
He didn't spend a lot of time bad-mouthing his successors. I think he was quite generous to his successors. Um, but, I, but, I, but he had his opinions about them as well. I think it's fair <laughs> to say that. And, and some of those things he told me in confidence, and I'll take those to my grave. Okay. <laughs> Here's where I should come in and say we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week. And this week, well, surprise, surprise, I think we should give the last word to former Premier Davis. Uh, I entirely agree. Uh, And my quote of the week comes from that 1996 uh, doc that I mentioned earlier uh, from a then very young Steve Pakin on the show, Fourth Reading. Uh, He was, (laughs) you were younger then than I am now. Uh, We've already mentioned there was one thing that uh, Premier Davis was notorious for and and never answering a question that he uh, didn't want to. And I I really like the artistry of this. Uh, Back in the day, you guys put together a bit of a, a montage of of all of the ways in which Bill Davis would decline to answer questions. Uh, and here it is from 1996. I, I am not at liberty. <laughs> I am at liberty, but I shan't. Yeah, I, I, and I couldn't comment on that. And once again, I, I have to be very careful how I phrase this. That's part of uh, a conjecture that I can't indulge in. Because I think if there's something you don't know about me, I'm not prepared to divulge it. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is so good, and that is so him. <laughs> what, what a wonderful memory. Yeah, that's the way he was. That is exactly the way he was. Well, here's my quote of the week, and we're going to go back to June 2009. Why then? Well, because I invited him into the studio at TVO that bears his name. We renamed the studio the William G. Davis Studio, where we do the agenda. And the occasion was the 50th anniversary of his first election victory as a 29-year-old backbencher in 1959 running in Peel County. And here's the last question I asked him in that interview. I want to ask you one last thing, and this is a bit of a touchy-feely question, so you'll forgive me here. You're going to be 80 years old next month. More yesterdays than tomorrow's. Do you think much about your mortality at this stage of the game? Listen, I have 12 grandchildren. They keep you from thinking too much about your mortality. Uh, no, and I, you know, you go back to your other question. I don't know how long I will continue to, uh, to be here. Uh, all I know is I've been involved in every single election, federal and provincial, since I retired. I am interested in what's happening in Ottawa at the moment. I'm interested in what's happening at Queen's Park. Uh, I hope I continue. How long I continue uh, is not totally in my hands, uh, Steve. But I don't worry about what the historians will say because I'm being very modest, but I am not uncomfortable with what we accomplished in the 25 years in public life. That also was so Bill Davis. How's that for a quote? I'm not uncomfortable with what we accomplished in 25 years in public life. That's a decent, modest guy. And so ends episode 120 of the On Poly podcast, produced this week by all of us, Matthew O'Mara, John Michael McGrath, and yours truly, JMM. Uh, thanks for this opportunity to walk down memory lane. I've appreciated it. And uh, until next time. Take care, Steve.